a magnificent gift to be called the children of God. Lord, thank you for the, the beauty and majesty of that text that, that John read for us, Lord. Father, it is amazing to me how easily I can start to actually think I'm cleaning myself. And, and forget the centerpiece of the story of the gospel that I have been made clean by Jesus. I thank you so much, Lord, for that truth, that reality that our brother laid before us today. I pray that as we turn our attention to your, your word again, that your blessing would be upon... Um, one of the last installments in this study, and for your blessing to be on your people. And so, Father, would you use me to be someone that can be used by you, an instrument in your hand? Uh, but, Father, it's not, a, it's not about Dan. It's, it's about your Holy Spirit and your Word affecting the lives of your people. These are your sheep. We are your sheep. We are your flock. And so I ask of you, my, my dear shepherd, would you feed us today from your word? We love you, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <clears throat> I say one of the last installments just because my desire is to do Genesis 50 today and then probably for two weeks do a, a little two-part series on typology and the type of Jesus Christ in Joseph particularly. I say two Sundays, no promises. I don't know how long that may go, but um, I will say one of the more difficult things of this series has been to not chase the messianic uh, prophecies, the typology of Jesus moving through the life of Joseph. Now, I would imagine as you've been walking through, you've been going, doesn't he know? Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but I wanted to just do that particularly after. And my main goal in that, you guys, or my main thought was, I want to get the text for the text, the historical context that this passage, this book sits in, and get that strong and clear and all the applications that come from that, and then look at that deeper layer of the messianic pieces, the prophecies, the typology of Jesus Christ in the man of Joseph. So <clears throat> that's coming. But for today, Genesis chapter 50. Look at verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Then the 40 days to do this were fulfilled. Because in this manner the days of embalming are fulfilled, and the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Then the days of weeping for him were past, and Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So now, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. 
And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very immense camp. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they lamented there with very great and immense lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Etad, and they said, this is an immense mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So this first chunk is the proper procedure and the promised procedure from Joseph to his father, Jacob. Now, it's an interesting phenomenon that I have seen, I'm sure you have seen, and quite possibly you have gone through, maybe with a friend or maybe with your own family. When the death of a patriarch or matriarch takes place, the impact and the effect that that has on their family. Now, I'm going a little different angle here than than simply or merely the intense emotion of regret and sadness. But you know what? I found it fascinating how grudges can be withheld or at least just put under the surface. And then the loss of a patriarch, things come to the surface. Sometimes it's over money. Sometimes it's over things that happen between them. And there's this funny phenomenon that I've seen, and I'm sure you have seen, where everything stays pretty civil until the loss. And I have seen some incredibly sad things happen between a family once they've lost their patriarch or a particular matriarch. That's in front of us a little bit today in reference to this man, Jacob. This man, Jacob, has been a primary character of this storyline, of the whole book of Genesis, but particularly the life of Joseph, prior to Joseph, as the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. Jacob is a a key figure, so much ink of your Bible. It's fascinating just to compare the amount of ink given to Jacob as opposed to Isaac. So much ink given to this man, and a very mixed man. A man where, if you look at his character, you can point to particular passages and say, what a worm this guy was. And then point to other passages and go, what a profound level of intimacy this this man had with the Lord. And the impact that he had on his sons, the severity of the pain he experienced in his lifetime, the loss of his son, the potential loss of another son, then the potential loss of his other, his youngest son, the grief where all the other brothers sought to wrap their arms and go, Dad, Dad, we're here, we're here. And he basically says, no, I've lost Joseph, and I'll go to my death in mourning. Just really grief-stricken the way this, what has impacted this man's life. 
And the kind of moments of intimacy with God that, that gives you goosebumps if you consider what's happening in that moment, where the Lord, the sovereign king, comes directly to this tiny little guy in this tiny little space of his vast created universe and seeks him out, pours love on him, encourages him. God, think about it, beloved, God encouraging him. I know that in our Christianity at times, we can start to think that we hang the moon and there's something about us that's so fantastic. Not so much. What I'm more and more deeply impressed by is the fact of God pursuing us, the fact of God coming to Jacob with that kind of love, with that kind of intense care. My my prayer for you and for me, this is a sidebar, they happen. Uh, let Let us be careful never to become familiar with God's love. Now, what do I mean by that? We should obviously be familiar with the love of our God. But Dennis, you gave an illustration years ago that I'm sure you thought I wasn't listening, but I was listening. An illustration of somebody stopping by your house and he drops off a $100 bill. And you get that $100 bill and you just ecstatic. What? What? You know how much coffee that is, right? (laughs) He comes by the next day. Or the next week was his illustration. And he goes, just want to give you another one. Dennis, this is over the top. It can keep going, doing great. (laughs) One year later, you can put it over there. The love of God, the intensity of our God in the way he pursues us, cares for us. Beloved, let that never, never, never become dusty. You have some kind of a weird callus that's developed over the years. You go, of course he loves me. Really? Really? I'm flabbergasted at the absolute wonderful, sweet grace of God. Flabbergasted. It's a Greek word. And so now Jacob just died. If you remember in chapter 49, last week we, we, we went there and this man has died. He's, he's gone. He, his, he's with his Lord. The scripture says that he, he pulls his feet into the bed and he's caught up to his people. A beautiful way, a scriptural way of saying that he died. And remember, beloved, there's no wasted ink in your Bible. Everything there has a purpose, has a goal. The Lord has graciously let us know. And so he actually tells us in that moment, that, that intense moment of dad died, We're told Joseph climbs onto his father in some fashion and cries over his face. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. You know how many times in the life of Joseph, recorded portions of the life of Joseph, we anticipated him to be sobbing and he wasn't? And then here we are, and the scripture tells us that he mourns. He weeps. He sobs over his father. Is this an act of a lack of faith? No, no. He's just weeping as one who has hope. He's not weeping as one who has no hope, as Paul makes reference to in 1 Thessalonians. He's weeping as one who has hope. Yes, he's caught up to the father by all means, but he's still my dad. 
I sell my dad. I was taken away from him for a lot of years. I've had some wonderful years with him, some sweet time with him. But the patriarch's gone. He's died. And you notice that Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. So these, these particular servants of Joseph, they're in Egypt. He commands them, take my father and prepare his body to be ready for burial. The, then the 40 days to do this were fulfilled because in this manner the days of embalming are, fulfill, are fulfilled. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. This is, a, this is the same kind of, it's not exactly the same, but it's much like the treatment of a king when a king dies in the Egyptian, um, uh, the way they practice this. And so what's being done here, and I have no doubt in my mind that part of this is because he is Joseph, who's second in command's father. And I would imagine Pharaoh is behind this, and, and there's a, a big to-do going on here because the father of number two in our land has died. And so for 70 days, they come and they mourn and they weep over him. And they embalm his body and prepare him to be buried. Then the days of weeping, verse 4, for him were past. And Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So now, please let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. Now, one question I had in working through this passage was, uh, you're number two in the land. Why don't you just go ask Pharaoh yourself? And some different people take some different shots at answering that. It's in that nice white space in your Bible again, so we don't know exactly why he did this. Um, most commentators just say that they think during those 70 days, during that time of great mourning, he did not cut his hair, he did not cut his beard, he let himself go for all that time of mourning, and perhaps he felt like he was not presentable to then go before Pharaoh. Possible. Don't know. But for some reason in that moment, he sent the the family, the household, this is all of his servants and everybody else, he sent them to Pharaoh to ask, can I go bury my father? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I, I hit this pretty hard uh, in the last couple weeks, but remember, the burial of Jacob is far more than just sentiment. That's an act of faith by Jacob to be buried in the land that God had promised. So when Jacob, when Jacob uh, is meeting there with Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh and says, I wish to be buried here, it's not simply him saying, I don't want to be buried in Egypt. This isn't my homeland. I want to go back there. There's more to that. Because the promise of the Lord to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was a people, a land, a blessing to all the nations through your seed. And so before Jacob dies, think about this. Last words are lasting words. Right, Dennis? Yeah. Last words are lasting words. And he chooses his last words to be, I want to be buried back there with my, with my kin. Why? You're superstitious? No, it's not about that. I want to be in line with the promise of God that this is the land that he promised to my father Abraham, and so I will be buried there. So here's Joseph coming on the servants on behalf of Joseph coming to Pharaoh and saying, he swore to his dad, 
On his deathbed, he swore to his father he would take him and bury him with his family. And so you have not only Jacob being obedient, but you also have Joseph very much being obedient. Being obedient to that covenant promise, but also being obedient to a promise made to his father as he was dying. Verse 6, And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up, listen to this entourage, went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very immense camp. So this is not merely a can we go really quick and come back really quick? This is a large um, processional where all these people are going there. Now, they left the young ones and they left all their animals. So there's no impression in the mind of Pharaoh that we're fleeing from you. There's no impression in the mind of Pharaoh that we're going back to our land never to return. No, of course we'll return. How do you know? Because I'm leaving my kids with you <laughs> and my pets. They're all staying with you. And so they're on this very, very large, massive group of people heading to go put this man and bury this man in the ground. Now, the embalming process, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details. You can Google that and get there super quick. But some of the details there, what's behind that is this concept that there is something in the afterlife. Now, we know that's to be true. Uh, the Egyptians uh, had a very pagan, ritualistic understanding of what that meant. But Joseph didn't. And Jacob didn't. And so as they prepared his body for a future resurrection, whether they understood all the details of that or not, I do not think they did, but nonetheless, there's a preparation for the body to be buried. And so all the work that went into that, plus all the mourning that accompanied that time to make it crystal clear, this was a man who God had touched. This was a man who has been important to our people. This is our father. So let us honor him in his death. You know, we always seek to do that at a funeral in our own day, right? We seek to honor the Lord Jesus, seek to honor the Lord. We want to glorify him. But there's also a very big need to honor that individual. Not to glorify them or hold them up and say there's something that they were not. I don't mean that kind of a weird thing. I just mean there's something sweet and particular to honor an individual at the service um, after they've died. And so here's Joseph with all of his family, all of his brothers, and all these people, all these Egyptians, moving here to go bury his father. Verse 10, And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they lamented there with a very great and immense lamentation. I don't know what all is involved in there. Um, I can imagine. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And here's the impact on those who were present. Now the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, and they said, this is an immense mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Basically means the meadow for mourning, or the meadow of mourning, that they named where he was going to be buried. 
what was all involved in that immense lamentation. Perhaps there was singing, shedding of tears, prayers, music. Sound familiar? There's only so many things you can do to express honor and glorify God as well as the individual you are burying. So Israel was faithful to what he wanted, to the promise, the covenantal promise, and Joseph now has completely been faithful to the promise to his father and to his father's father. Now, look at verse 15. Well, let me, let me verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. Indeed, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. Now he tells us what else has happened. We've been studying this for years together. We know this. But which Abraham had bought along with the field for his possession as a burial site for Ephron, from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Tears are drying up. Conversation is still good. Things are going well. But what's in the minds of the brothers? Then Joseph, verse 15, Then Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us? And returns back to us all the evil which we dealt against him. I, I think you can, you can definitely see there is some true repentance in the brothers. The great evil we did against him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, this is fascinating and brilliant, your father commanded before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they dealt evil against you. So now please forgive the transgression of the slaves of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, at first reading, I would venture a guess for you, okay? I'll venture a guess for you because it was the same kind of where I was at. I'll venture the guess... If I were to ask you individually after the service, did Jacob really say that to him? I'd venture a guess you'd probably answer no. But does the text say? Is it possible Jacob said, when I'm gone, I need you to tell this to Joseph? Now, do I know? I don't know. But here's the correction to Dan as a Bible student. My presupposition of character on a Bible character is a scary thing to do. And so the brothers who've had bad motives, bad intentions, so on and so forth, have also tasted some repentance. So when I read the text and I go, Dad never said that, that's me presupposing and pressing an evil motive on the brothers. Which we should be very, very careful, beloved. Now, could that be the case? Of course it could be the case. Is it the case? I don't know. But I give that to you as, as kind of like a, a Bible study tidbit where 
When I catch something like that, by God's grace, I catch that even in my mind, I'm interpreting based on what I think it is or what it will be. Let us just be careful how we handle the text of sacred scripture. Along with that, is it that far-fetched to think that Jacob would say, when I'm gone, I want you guys to give this sentiment to your brother, that I want him to forgive you. Is it possible that Jacob had tasted so much grace that he would desire for his son to give grace to his other sons? Not that far-fetched for me, but I don't know. Regardless, the brothers are scared. Joseph still holds a grudge. And so they come to him, and here's what they say to him. They saw that their father was dead, and they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and returns back to us all the evil which we dealt against him? Now, here's what's fascinating, and I forget just which commentator made this point. I thought it was a really interesting point. He said the brothers are, jo- are judging Joseph based on themselves. Uh, now, what, what does he mean by that? The brothers are judging Joseph based on themselves. In other words, what would we do? Well, that says something about their character, but it also says something about their knowledge of their character. That perhaps Joseph, now that dad's gone, he's going to come back with some retribution, and things are going to get really ugly in Egypt for us because there's nothing stopping him now. Oh, oh, sure, yeah, for a time, for a time, Joseph would, would, would hold back, right, to please dad. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to hold back until dad's gone. But when dad's gone, we're going we're to talk. And so they come to him and they say, uh, this is what dad said. Joseph's response is so moving His reaction to that is he weeps. And you go, what kind of soul does this man have? That when the brothers come before him and they say, Dad said this, that you you should forgive, you should forgive, you should forgive, that we'll be slaves, You, you, you forgive him, you forgive them. Joseph's response is weeping. And I just challenge you guys to wrestle with that a bit on your own. What's behind the tears in that moment in Joseph? My understanding is that what's behind those tears is Joseph is so profoundly moved by the fact that they would actually think he would do that. After all the grace God's given to me, and after all the grace I've given to you, You think I've been waiting this whole time just to get you back. And that grief hits the heart in such a way, tears flow. You mean to tell me you guys think after I provided for you, I provided for your your babies, I provided for dad, we just went and buried our father, you think I'm going to come back and have that kind of dirty spite in my heart? And so he mourns. He mourns that his brothers would think of him in such a way. 
I, what's interesting about this whole discourse, beloved, is the, the camera angles. Because you got the camera angle of Joseph, and then you flip that around and you go, so how'd the brothers respond to the weeping brother? That his reaction was not, okay, fine. Or, dad's not here, I'll do what I want. But rather, his heart of flesh, his tender heart, by God's grace, mourns that they went there. Now, <clears throat> look down at your Bibles, because there's, there's a massive theological reality behind the tears. Uh, verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Now what a question, beloved. For am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. What good? in order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. Now, this is what's interesting. The brothers had thought about their dad, the brothers had thought about themselves, and the brothers had thought about Joseph. But they're missing someone. The brothers had no consideration of what God had done in the heart of Joseph. And Joseph introduces the sovereign one into the discussion. Please forgive us, because dad said so. And on top of that, we'll be your slaves. Joseph doesn't come back and say, oh, well, since dad said so. Joseph doesn't come back and say, well, since you'll be slaves. Joseph comes back and says, brothers, Am I God? No, I'm, I'm not God. But I don't want you to be afraid. What a statement made by this young brother of these brothers to say, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. And then he wallops them with a two-by-four of theology and says, in your heart, in that moment, when you grab my arm, your 17-year-old brother, and you took me. You threw me in a pit. You ate the food that I brought you. Then you decided not to just let me die down there. You brought me up, and you grabbed my arms again. And I, I remember those bruises, seeing your, your hands on my body and seeing those bruises, how you hurt me. I remember seeing that, boys, how you did all that damage. And then you pulled me out, and you sold me for money. You sold me. Your own brother, you sold me. In your hearts, pure evil was meant. And you are not off the hook in the sense of saying that it was not evil. In your hearts, you meant it as evil, period. But simultaneously, in that exact second, the sovereign of the universe had an intention as well that supersedes your intention. And he accomplished his absolute, perfect purpose through your sinful, evil intention. How's that work, Dan? I'm still wrestling. 
still wrestling. But I see nowhere in the text does it say God was not in control, and I see nowhere in the text where the brothers can say, well, therefore, we're not culpable. Simultaneously, both there. You meant it for evil. God meant it. Notice the it for good. And so, brothers, am I God to stand in judgment of you? No. No, I'm not. And so, here's what he says. Verse 21. So now, do not be afraid. And he pours on the grace. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke to their heart. What a sweet statement. You hear that? These guys came to him with the the preparation of brutal slavery. We'll be mistreated by your hand. Please, just, just have mercy, have grace. And Joseph takes care of them. And the language here, what's so profound about the language is he says, he spoke to their heart and he granted comfort to them. Now, what does that look like? Did he, did he embrace the brothers? Did he come up close and, and grab them and pull them in and say, I'm going to care for you. And you can read a passage like that and you can come away rejoicing in Joseph. You'd miss the point if you do. What's happened here is God has transformed the man by grace. Joseph has tasted the sweetness of God's kindness. And and what flows from the wellspring of what's happened in Joseph's life and heart then flows out to his brothers. Beloved, it's it's an odd statement, but he is loving his enemies. Now, they're... Not so much his enemies here at this time. But I'll ask you, how easy, how easy would it have been for him to have held a grudge all those years and finally get sweet revenge in that moment? And how against the grain of human nature is what he did? What's at the base of that are two things. Number one, the fact that Joseph has tasted God's kindness and grace. And number two, he sees God's handiwork in the set of circumstances to accomplish his good purpose. Now, let's wrap up verse 22. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years quite a few years less than the other patriarchs before him, but nonetheless, a good length of days. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, now you read that and you go, whoa, 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 brothers, they outlived him? Well, there's two answers, two possible answers. A, Possibly. Benjamin and maybe another brother closer in age lived longer than he did. Possibly. But do you remember the blessing that was given from Jacob where he adopted Ephraim and Manasseh? So, possibly he's referring to Ephraim and Manasseh who would be a bit younger than he, and they are the brothers because they were adopted by his father. It's one of those two, but either way, that's, these are who he is speaking to. And here's what he says. I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you 
and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. There's the covenant blessing. There's the covenant promise again. On his way off the scene, he says, but I know there will be an exodus. And if you just look to your right in your Bible, there's a word there, um, where he says, you will be returning. You'll be going back. And we all ask the question, Joseph, how do you know that? Because God said it. Good is done. That's how I know that. God said it. And so as Joseph is dying, he speaks to the covenant promises of God, just as his father Jacob did, just as Isaac did, and just as Abraham did. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. It is so interesting to me, and I encourage you to do this. Just sit down and read Hebrews 11. And what is fascinating to me is just what is recorded regarding some of the Old Testament characters. Because some of it's just like, really? That's <laughs> we've, we've got the hall of faith, right? And this is what's recorded here in Hebrews 11 in reference to Joseph, that he requested to be taken back and buried there. So then he asks the question, why does the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, particularly make mention to that? I am convinced it's because this is all about him being faithful to the covenant promises of God, given to Abraham, given to Isaac, given to Jacob, given to Joseph. And he promises this will take place, and I wish to be buried back there with my fathers. This is not some odd sentimental thing. I wish to be obedient to be there. I wish to be obedient to God's promise. Verse 26. The great man, Joseph. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. I have read every single word of this book standing here before you. <laughs> Four years this week. And um, I, I'll end on this note because I think it is one of the most profound notes throughout the entire book. There are times, you guys, where circumstances appear to be absolutely out of God's control. And if Genesis has said at least one thing, I mean, I realize, guys, four, four years of application, okay, but if there's one thing in particular, what it shows me is the Lord has never, will never be out of control. Because the sum of the circumstances entailed in this entire, in the entire book, I mean, Abraham and Hagar, really? Where's God? Joseph being taken and by his brothers and sold in that moment, that set of circumstances. Where's God? And page after page after page, Abraham lying. I want you, Sarah, to tell him I'm your brother. I want you to lie on our behalf. Where's God? And you just ask it over and over and over again. Adam and Eve sin. Where's God? And what I keep coming back to going through this book is there is a glorious plan of redemption on point. What's tough is there are times where apparent circumstances seem so crushing, we begin to actually buy the lie he's not in control. 
how, how, for Joseph to die, be caught up to his family, and to go before God and say, man, Lord, I couldn't have even guessed at what you were up to in my life. That truth that God has got the steering wheel in the midst of circumstances that are just killing you is one that I wish to just press before you and ask that God would bless you with that reality. And this morning I end on this note. Um, I want to just thank you. We all know that there's all kinds of jokes and stuff about boring preachers and, you know, all that fun stuff, right? Oh, he went long, and yeah, I I know, I know. Only the good ones do it, I'll say that. But um, uh, in in, uh, sincerity, um, kicking down some emotion, in sincerity, um, you, you are a wonderful, wonderful church family to preach to. <clears throat> and that, that's a testimony I hear from guest speakers as well. Because of your attentiveness to the Word, your attention to the preaching of the Word, your love for God, and um, I just want to say thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sustaining grace that we as a a church family have traveled through 50 chapters of the book of Genesis together. We have seen and heard, Lord, a sea of facts. And I, I pray, Lord God, from my heart, deep from my heart this morning, that you have sown the sweet word into the lives of these people. Some folks showed up in the middle of this series. Some were there at the start. But Lord, I feel, I feel very, very humble, very small this morning. For the grace and the kindness shown to me by this, this church family. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for very, very much for <clears throat> thank you, Lord, for calling me and allowing me to bear such a marvelous privilege to bring the word. It is a gift from you that I do not take lightly, and Father, I praise your holy name for the past four years and ask for your rich blessing as we move forward from finishing up this book. Our desire, Father, as a, as a church body, on behalf of this church family and from my heart, we want to honor our God. You are our King. 
You are our master. And dear Father, we, we deeply love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you.